Hey, welcome to PT Snacks Podcast. This is Casey, your host. And if you're tuning in for the very first time, basically what you need to know is that this podcast is meant for physical therapists and physical therapist students who are looking to grow your foundations, but do it in bite-sized segments of time. And if you missed last week, we just started on the brachial plexus, which is a bear in itself. But today we are using that as the foundation to dive more into one of the branches, the median nerve. If you need a little refresher, just go back to episode 26. But for today, we're going to be diving into more of the anatomy of the median nerve, as in what the path is that it follows, the muscles that it innervates, and then of course, what can go wrong with it. Because a lot of times people, when they just think median nerve, they think oh, probably carpal tunnel. And that is one option for a distal neural injury, but there's a lot others out there that can mimic it closely enough because it's the same nerve. It just, the injury might happen at different places. So we'll cover that in our differential diagnoses later. But for now, we are talking about the median nerve. So remember, the median nerve is a mixed nerve, meaning that it has motor and sensory uh, components to it, which has to do with, with the nerve itself when you're looking for deficits, what to look for. So it's a nerve that has a lot to do with the functionality of the hand. So we're looking more at like the flexor pronators of the forearm, the radial portion of the hand, meaning like your thumb side, abduction of the thumb, flexing the hand at the wrist, and then um, some finger control too. And then for, so that's motor component. For sensory component, again, if your palm is up towards the ceiling, you're taking a look at your thumb, index, middle, and then the radial side or thumb side of the ring finger. And then half of the radial palm of the hand as well. And then on the back side of the hand, dorsal skin, it's on the last two phalanges of the index and middle. So remember, this is one of the branches of the preacal plexus that still has all components to it, meaning all spinal levels from C5 to T1. And in the portion of the brachial plexus before this, in the cords, the lateral and medial cords have branches that split off and then join together into the median nerve. And as the nerve travels down anterior portion of the arm, it'll end up popping up medial to the biceps and brachialis and then lateral to the brachial artery and then enter into the form under the biceps, aponosis, and then between the two heads of the pronator's teres, which is going to be important later on when we're talking about differential diagnoses. And part of the nerve will give rise to the anterior interosseous nerve, the AIN, in the forearm. And then the other part continues on down to the hand to the carpal tunnel. And fun fact... In the median nerve, it doesn't actually innervate any muscles of the arm. If you see deficits in like strength or weakness above the elbow, for example, you might have missed something. Probably need to look into that a little bit more. Don't just write it off to the median nerve. But it does innervate some of the muscles in the forearm. For instance, your pronator teres, flexor carpi radialis, palmaris longus, and flexor digitorum superficialis. And... In the hand, you're looking at your thenar muscles and lateral two lumbricals. For the AIN, that is a motor-only nerve. There's no sensory component to it. That innervates the flexor pollicis longus, the pronator quadratus, and the lateral half of the flexor digitorum profundus. The nerve is traveling down the arm to the hand, innervates some muscles along the way. 
Nothing too crazy, right? So where can the nerve get injured? Well, honestly, the nerve can get injured wherever along the nerve path. For instance, if it's a stab wound, that could happen anyway, right? Hopefully it doesn't happen at all. But a lot of times, if you're looking at if there's an anterior shoulder dislocation or elbow dislocation, if there's a mid-shaft radius fracture, or maybe someone had a tourniquet on them too long um, during a procedure or something like that, that can cause injury to the median nerve. The thing is, it's with those ones I just mentioned, you're probably not going to see a median nerve injury in isolation. The other nerves are probably going to be affected too. But a really common fracture that can injure the median nerve is a supracondylar humerus fracture. But you'll see with an injury to this adduction of the wrist, they are going to lose their pronators of the forearm, their wrist flexors are going to be weak, loss of thumb flexion, thenar muscle atrophy, and then they're also going to lose sensation over the corresponding area. So when they try and make a fist, the radial digits are not going to be able to flex very well. So that's called the hand of benediction sign. And then at rest, they won't have their thumb abduction. So the loss of thumb abduction is called ape hand deformity. So that's the supracondylar humerus fracture, but you can also have an injury at your AIN or compression at the carpal tunnel, which is what we're going to talk about next. So what is carpal tunnel? Carpal tunnel syndrome is when the carpal tunnel is compressed. So it's actually the most common type of nerve injury. And what happens is the median nerve, as it runs between the carpal bones and the flexor inoculum, sometimes it gets compressed. And nerves often don't like being compressed. So after some time, the nerve will let you know that it's unhappy. So some people are a little bit more prone to this. So some risk factors are obesity. So increasing BMI is linked to increasing risk. Uh, Same with age. The older you are, increasing risk as well. And then female sex as well as a pretty big risk factor. Some others that are mentioned with a little bit Weaker associations are diabetes mellitus, OA, estrogen replacement therapy, cardiovascular disease, hypothyroidism, family history of carpal tunnel, um, lack of physical activity, wrist ratio greater than 0.7, wrist palm ratio greater than 0.39. And then if they've got short, wide hands and short stature, apparently this is also linked to that as well. But if this patient walks in, and they're presenting with some of these things, then it may be good to put this on your differential list. Now, in terms of occupational risk factors, the strongest association is forceful hand exertions. Then their symptoms, they're going to have some numbness and tingling, and a lot of times their pain gets worse at night. Now, as the pain severity increases, it's not a just-at-night thing. Then They might actually have it during the day, too. But the flick sign is a a common test for like, hey, a patient will wake up at night, they'll shake their hands around, that helps them get some relief, they feel better, they can go back to sleep. That's called the flick sign, they're flicking their wrists. So the flick sign is actually 93% sensitive and 96% specific for carpal tunnel. But these patients also might notice their symptoms get worse with prolonged wrist flexion or extension or 
They might have weakness or clumsiness of the hand with like gripping or grasping things. If it's been going on for a long enough time, if it's chronic, they may even have atrophy of their thenar eminence. Uh, so it's definitely something to take a look at if they walk in. And then sensory-wise, remember in the median nerve, we're looking at a thumb, index, long, and lateral half of the ring finger. But with carpal tunnel syndrome, they're not going to have sensory loss at the thenar eminence, which is an important differentiating factor. Which leads us nicely into the next section where we're talking about our differential diagnoses. So in terms of nerve injuries, like big picture, nerves can get injured through trauma, chronic microtrauma, compressive things, degenerative processes, and neuropathies. Uh, other differentials for carpal tunnel would be like a proximal median neuropathy, like for example, pronator syndrome. This is when the median nerve gets entrapped between the two heads of the pronator teres at the elbow, and it looks really similar to carpal tunnel, but it's more so they'll feel their symptoms when they extend their elbow and they have repetitive pronation that actually reproduces their symptoms. On this one, they will have loss of sensation over the thenar eminence. And a lot of times they'll have a negative failing antennal sign. So in our research, sometimes we'll see this more often in professional cyclists. Another big one, let's rule out the neck. Is it a cervical radiculopathy or some sort of referred radicular pain coming from the neck? So don't forget about your cervical screen, your proximal screen. The AIN, the anterior interosseous nerve, can also be compressed and therefore become unhappy. The thing about this nerve, it there's no sensory deficits because it's only a motor nerve. So if it's motor only, keep in mind, the innervate, it innervates the flexor pollicis longus, pronator quadratus, and deep flexors of the first and second digits. Knowing that, if you have your patient make an okay sign and they're not able to make it, we're starting to lean more towards a AIN. And this is often most commonly injured with like a complex trauma, but not really seen in isolation very much. Also, roll out thoracic outlet syndrome. Make sure that you're ruling out ALS or MS because they also are nerve degenerative diseases that begin with distal symptoms. Um, any type of flexor tendonitis or wrist OA or even, you know, have they been having chemotherapy and they have chemo-induced peripheral chemo symptoms? So knowing that this patient's complaining of those things, we've got some differentials. Now what? So in our exam, in our clinical practice guideline, there's several options of things they have you look at, but one of them with decent evidence is using monofilament testing. And you're using 3.22 as the threshold for normal. You can also use a cat's hand diagram. Basically, it's a picture of a hand and the patient is going to fill out where they feel it. And you're using your knowledge of, oh, the median nerve provides sensation to this area. This seems to line up with what the patient drew. That's the cat's hand diagram. Provocative tests include the tinnel sign. That's where you tap on the median nerve if they get an electric shock sensation. The sensitivity is 50% and the specificity is 77%. Failing test is where your patient flexes their wrists for a minute, and then you're just trying to wait and see if they get any numbness or tingling in the median nerve distribution. That sensitivity is 68% and specificity is 73%. Carpal tunnel compression test is basically 
you as examiner are going to press your thumbs over the carpal tunnel, hold it, and apply pressure for 30 seconds and see what happens. So see if they have pain or a paresthesia in the median nerve distribution. And that compression test has a sensitivity of 87% and a specificity of 90%. Some others that are cited in research, you're looking at sensory loss in the thumb, uh, wrist ratio index more than 0.67, and then there's an outcome measure, the CTQ SSS um, for carpal tunnel, where you're looking for it to be greater than 1.9. So out of these factors, more than three is considered acceptable diagnostic accuracy. And there's different ranges of severity for carpal tunnel. There's mild, moderate, severe, and extreme. So mild, it's you don't have really any motor or sensory loss yet, um, but you might have a little bit of numbness and tingling. Moderate, you're starting to notice some sensory loss, and then it, you're starting to notice your sleep is getting disrupted, and maybe some mild changes to hand function. Severe, you're going to have mild to moderate weakness in the hand, and it's definitely going to change your activities of daily living. And then severe is obviously even more than that. Further diagnostic tests, they'll take a look at your EMG for electromyography and try and quantify the weakness of a muscle by stimulating that nerve and use it to be a little bit more specific in the distribution of, of strength loss. And that can be up to 99% specific. They may use MRIs to kind of visualize the carpal tunnel or ultrasound as well. So that is the median nerve. Are there more things that can go wrong? Absolutely. But we want. I wanted to make sure that I covered carpal tunnel with some of their differentials in there. So that, again, if a patient walks in with something that has gone wrong, you are able to use best practice to differentiate what structure is specifically wrong so that you can help them. So the main takeaways I hope that you get from this episode are where is the median nerve? What is it split into? How do we diagnose carpal tunnel syndrome and what are its differentials? So if you have any questions at all, feel free to reach out at ptsnextpodcast at gmail.com. I'm going to be starting a newsletter soon. So if you'd like to sign up for that, go ahead to my website. It's up right now where you can sign up for a newsletter. Um, you can also find me on Instagram at PT Snacks Podcast. And if you haven't already, go ahead and hit follow so you don't miss out on anything 